Welcome back, everybody. On this episode of the Golf Guide Podcast, I was joined by Jay Blasey, noted golf course architect, whose West Coast work includes uh, 2015 U.S. Open Host Chambers Bay, as well as a recent renovation of Santa Ana Country Club down in Orange County. And uh, the way we were able to connect is he is actually the man tasked by the San Francisco Public Golf Alliance by res- uh, f- to restore Sharp Park in Pacifica, California. He was referred to me by Bo Lynx uh, a couple episodes ago when I had a chance to speak to him. And um, yeah, ended up having a good conversation. Met up with him down at the Stanford University uh, Varsity Training Complex, which he also uh, designed um, over the past couple of years. So yeah, fun conversation with Jay. And so without any further delay, let's get to it. Another episode of the Golf Guide Podcast. <laughs> say Blasi, but I hear other people say Blasi. Yeah, it's J Blasi. So okay. It sounds like a Z. Yeah, phonetically it sounds like a Z, but it, it, it's spelled with an S. That's correct. Okay, awesome. Well, Jay, thank you very much for joining us. Um, accomplished golf course architect. Um, we are actually recording this from what I just learned was the same location that Mr. David Faraday and Miss Condoleezza Rice recorded their television show. He said just a couple of weeks ago. I think it aired uh, last week. I don't know when they filmed it, but I'm sure we'll have at least as many viewers or <laughs> people tuning in. Totally. Yeah, no, this would be, be really, really good. So, no, I, I really uh, really do appreciate you joining us, man. This is a, a really cool opportunity. Um, we were able to connect. Um, I'm sure people that are listening, if they listened to the podcast from a couple of weeks ago when we had uh, Bo Links from the San Francisco Public Golf Alliance on to kind of talk about the restoration of Sharp Park, he, uh, he mentioned your name several times, had a lot of really great things to say about you, so I just figured I'd uh, throw some against the wall and see if it stuck and you, you were kind enough to respond and, and join me here so thank you very very much for for joining us man this is I think we're gonna have a lot of fun today thank you I appreciate the opportunity <laughs> so for anybody who's unfamiliar with you and your work before we get into your work and life as a golf course architect you mind telling us a bit about yourself and you know your background you mentioned that you are not from California you're a you're a Wisconsin guy so Mind sharing with anybody a little about your background, uh, your exposure to golf as a kid, and maybe how that eventually led to you becoming a distinguished golf course architect? Yeah, sure. So uh, born and raised in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, go Badgers. <laughs> and uh, My grandpa's a Badger as well. So we're more <laughs> He's a good man. He's a good <laughs> man. Um, so I was exposed to golf early. Uh, my dad brought plastic golf clubs to the hospital when I was born. Uh, Your he, dad sounds like a good man. <laughs> he, he grew up on the south side of Chicago, and he was a, a caddy at a Donald Ross course, Beverly Country Club. And so that's how he fell in love with the game of golf. And um, he, he went to the UW. He met my mom. And um, and so when they were starting their new life and they bought their first house, my dad had a putting green built in the backyard. Uh, he was he was a teacher, and so he had summers off. So in his summer, he would go work on the grounds crew, and he befriended the superintendent. And so he, time to build their first house. So they uh, he gets the superintendent to come over, and they build a putting green in the backyard. So Your dad must be just <laughs> the most charming, wonderful <laughs> man ever. Hey, bud, can you build me a green? For you, anything. <laughs> He's a good guy. So, you know, I was very, very fortunate. I grew up. I spent my entire childhood on a backyard putting green you know uh i'm very confident hitting a flop shot <laughs> i would say so that your short game is your strong suit it was when i was eight okay. i would give anything to have my eight-year-old short game back again isn't that so <laughs> weird i'm the same way yeah. it just yeah it disappears over time so okay so 
So you're doing that. You're playing golf from a young age in a custom putting green in your backyard. <laughs> so wh- where did the transition go from just passionate child golfer to, hey, I have a huge interest in designing golf courses or golf course architecture fascinates me? Well, the fascination was there early, even if I maybe didn't know it. So when I was four or five, we'd go out for dinner and I'd flip the placemat over and I'd draw golf holes with the crayons that they'd leave for little kids. So, um, you know, when I was a a kid, we would go on long road trips and I would have my face planted against the window looking out at the rolling countryside, just dreaming of golf holes in the field. So the the interest and the passion was there. Um, I guess I probably didn't put two and two together that, you know, somebody could make a living doing that or the <laughs> people that actually do that uh, till till high school. And so uh, in high school, that became uh, something that I thought a lot more about, read books on the subject mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. But for whatever reason, uh, when I was going to head off to college, even though that really was my passion, everybody in school knew about it. If you look at my uh, notebooks in, in high school, they were all filled with just golf hole drawings. It and sounds all too familiar. <laughs> uh, so all of those things. But for whatever reason, I guess I, I just thought, oh, I'll go into business. You know, I as a kid growing up playing golf, I had been exposed to uh, all sorts of you know business people. I was always playing with people who were much older than I was, and and so just assume that's what you did. And my parents were the ones who said, are you are you crazy? I mean, this is this is what you're passionate about, you have to go for it, and and business will be there forever, but uh, you, you ought to try this. So, and and uh, as, as the wise man that I am, I listened to my parents and, and went for it, and, and uh, so I found out that most people got a degree in landscape architecture. Okay. So I enrolled, uh, I went to the University of Wisconsin and enrolled in landscape architecture, at the time, I didn't know an oak tree from a maple tree. I didn't, you know, I didn't know all these, all these uh, uh, kind of things that you would come to learn and probably figured out most people already knew. I just knew golf, so uh, so I, it, w- it was a great experience. I have to say, it sounds to me like your parents may have been the coolest parenting duo <laughs> in the history of golf parents, because most people, it's the exact opposite. Mom, Dad, I want to go build golf courses. Oh, that's nice, little Jimmy. Why don't you try something that makes money? <laughs> it's, it's like, wait, but why don't you go into business? That was my parents. Yeah. And so I'm. That's very, very cool that your parents were really supportive of, uh, of you and just kind of reminding you what your real passions were. Because without them, I guess you probably aren't sitting here with me today, are you? Yeah. No. No doubt about it. And uh, I couldn't be more true. And I, I thank them every day for, uh, for that and and so much more. They're they're both great and they're both still around and I, I get to see them often. Very very. Uh, thankful but and it's something that I, I wish more kids would have the opportunity whether it's golf or anything else because I'm a firm believer um, that if you do what you love and if you're passionate about what you do you're going to be you're going to find a way to be successful at it you're going to be happy every day totally. <laughs> and 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 you know you being happy may, makes the people around you happy and yeah you know that the world's a better place absolutely when, when, when those things happen happiness is transferable <laughs> when when you when you are filled with joy the people around you are happier as well so now that you your parents have reminded you that golf course architecture is something you're not only passionate about but you could be really good at you've identified landscape architecture as the course of study you probably have to go into if this is something you really want to do um and somewhere along the lines you hook up with robert trent jones jr do you, do you mind sharing with us a little bit how that kind of came uh, to fruition? 
So there's probably lots of different threads that made that come about. So uh, when I was in high school, I uh, competed uh, in the state championship at University Ridge Golf Course, the University of Wisconsin Golf Course, Mm -hmm. which was about five minutes from my house. I worked at that golf course. It just so happened that that golf course was designed by Robert Trent Jones, too. Uh, And so that was, you know, uh, something there. When I was in college, uh, I did two year-long independent study projects where I uh, basically designed a mock golf course. Mm -hmm. And one of those was to design a second golf course for University Ridge. They had adjacent land that was there. And so I was familiar with the property and all that. So when it came time to look for an internship, I reached out to the Jones organization. Uh, Bruce Charlton, who's been with Bobby for many, many years, uh, he was kind of the main guy uh, at University Ridge, the guy who did a lot of the work there. Mm-hmm. And he was a Midwest guy. He was from Iowa. So I called somehow, some way. Uh, I got a hold of him, and that's pretty rare because he's on the road 200-plus mm-hmm. days a year. <laughs> and we seemed to really hit it off. So I was all excited thinking, oh, I'm going to get this internship or whatever. Well, it just so happened that they didn't have an internship that year. <laughs> no. But – he re- he remembered our conversation, and so um, a year and a half later when they were looking for somebody, you know, they have big file cases full of resumes or whatever, but he had remembered our conversation, so he threw my name in the hat. And, uh, you know, so when I had gotten out of school and I was looking, uh, they were going to look to add somebody for the first time in a long time, and so I became one of a few to, to have the chance to go out and interview. So I came out to California and was all excited. I was going to meet Bruce and the whole team. And it just so happened that the day I came to interview, Bruce was on an emergency site visit. Somebody else was sick. Somebody else was out of town. So I'm basically sitting in an empty office. And all of a sudden, Bob comes in. And Bob's never in the office. I mean, he's he's there maybe once a month or something like this that. Is, this is a rarity uh, to have yeah, the, right. the man himself in the office. Yeah. And so we start chatting. And he says, you know, where are you from? And oh, have you heard of University Ridge? Well, I worked there and I did. <laughs> Here, look at the golf course I designed as a second course. And, and so, ah. uh, you know, whether or not that had anything to do with it, I'll, I, I don't know. But uh, I was I was lucky enough to, to get the gig. And a few months later, I was I was out here. And voila. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is really, really cool. So you start working for Robert Trent Jones, Jr. Obviously, by this time, is his dad still uh, practicing an active architect at the time? Or is it basically just him and his brother, Reese, are kind of the Joneses doing most of the golf course architecture work. I, I never had a chance to meet, uh, as he's as he's known, uh, the old man. But the old uh, man. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, yeah, so I believe he passed on in in '99, okay. maybe 2000, uh, and I started in in the fall of 2001. Got so uh, yeah, so there's the two brothers. There's uh, Robert Trent Jones Jr. Bobby. Uh, his office is out here in Palo Alto, California, and then there's Reese, the younger brother, who's still in New Jersey. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Although both have done extensive amounts of work here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Is, is that correct? I mean, I know that Reese did, redid Lake Merced uh, at some point, I guess maybe in the 90s or something like that. But I, I feel like I see both their names crop up quite a bit pretty much anywhere you go in the whole country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, b- bo- both have been prolific. Bobby, Bobby particularly internationally mm-hmm. in, in addition to the domestic. And, and I think Reese has pretty much stayed domestic with maybe one or two here and there. Interesting. So... One thing I know I'm really curious about, and if the, the listeners, I don't know whether they're super curious or not, but they're listening to the show that I host, so hopefully they share the same interests that I do. So I'll just go ahead and ask. 
I'm very interested about kind of how the inner workings of a golf course architecture firm works in terms of you, you're starting out as a you know, newer associate. What are the different roles that you had during your time at Robert Trent Jones's firm in terms of moving up the different things you were kind of tasked with doing? How many different people are actually designing golf courses? I'm, I'm just kind of generally fascinated by all the ins and outs of the operation. So at least for you, when you first started out with Robert Trent Jones, what were some of the things that you were doing when you first started out and how did that kind of progress? Yeah, so I think, you know, one key thing to, to remember is that, you know, all golf architect offices are different, so they probably operate different ways, mm -hmm. and and uh, even the Jones firm may operate differently now. But, uh, you know, I think there's probably some general threads to it. So, um, you know, when I first got started, I was there to assist others. So you've got, um, so you had Bobby, who's kind of, uh, you know, the main guy, and mm -hmm. then there were other guys in the office who were, you know, designing golf courses and coming up with ideas and plans and working directly with Bobby on everything. And then there were, you know, at, at the time, uh, there was myself and another guy who were kind of the younger guys assisting. Sure. And so uh, you would be coloring plans, you would be entering, you know, I, I started in 2001, this was about the time when the computer system was just coming on board. Sure. And so um, you'd, you'd, you'd basically take a plan, scan it, and then trace it into the computer, uh, you know, those types of things. Uh, you would, you know, so if somebody had drawn up a, a, what we refer to as a cut and fill plan, uh, you'd draw a grading plan, and then you figure out where the cuts and the fills are going to be. It might be my task to take that plan and, and do the, the calculation. So I'd go take okay. a plan and go measure something and say, okay, this area is... 4,000 cubic yards of cut and this other area is 8,000 cubic yards of fill and then and do those types of things so mm. there was a wide range of, of of tasks and you could be doing those on projects all over the world from Palo Alto so sure one day I'm in Sweden and the next day I'm in Brazil and uh, you know so you know as a 20 one year old kid you know this is the coolest thing on earth you're yeah getting you hit the ground running you're getting exposed to all these uh uh great places and and neat things and and so uh yeah could, couldn't ask for a better way to start is it bad that my first thought is as you're describing you know the fill and calculating the cubic you know yards of, of dirt and stuff that you're moving if you're not good at math can you do this job <laughs> you know it, it, it's amazing uh you know i think this is probably true of any job but sure when you know you think of oh golf course architect you, it kind of has this romantic picture of, totally. of either either the finished product which is usually a beautiful setting walking the land surveying everything imagining golf holes or out <laughs> out in the dirt waving and you know having the bulldozer <laughs> going and in reality there's a wide range of tasks you have to be able to write you have to be able to speak you got to sure. you got to do math uh, there, there's a whole host of of, of things that uh, are important uh, in that role. Got it. So, you, so you're just starting out at uh, at Mr. Jones's firm. So, how long is it, and what are the kind of different things you're doing before you finally get the opportunity to get out there and have some input in terms of the design of a golf course? Is that something you really had to work a long time and earn their trust before they were willing to do that to you, or is it was it more of a thing where they kind of wanted everybody's input, but at you know ultimately Bobby would have the the final say so and it, like I know that you said every firm's a little bit different but at least in your particular experience through your lens is is that kind of how it worked with you at your firm yeah so um, you know you're there you're helping so 
if if uh, you know if I was asked to do a cut and fill plan uh, and quantity calcs for something for one of the guys in the office, I might do the plan and then I'd bring it into him and we'd talk about it. And so mm -hmm. then I, you know, uh, my family refers to me as Larry King because <laughs> I'm always inquisitive and asking a million questions. So, you know, I we might should switch jobs. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I might have uh, I might have spent you know, a few hours working on this plan, but while I'm working on it, I'm looking at it and thinking, okay, why'd they do this? Why'd they do that? And, and so then you, you talk about that. Um, so I think in terms of how people progress within an office, I think so much of that just depends on each different office. And it can be that, you know, you earn their trust and that they, they kind of guide you and teach you along the way and, and, and get comfortable with the idea of giving you more to take on. Some of it also can just be a byproduct of workload. If mm -hmm. if uh, if more stuff comes in than than the people above you can handle, then all of a sudden you may get your turn. You know that. Interesting. So I've heard a number of stories about people, uh, particularly those who kind of start in the on the construction side of things, where they show up on a job and day one they might have a rake or a shovel and day three all of a sudden they're on a bulldozer <laughs> having never been on a bulldozer before and and you know now these are uh, uh people who travel the world uh, on the bulldozer because of their skill that's yeah. awesome yeah so. what, i think when i read that uh, the book about the dream golf what about the making of band of dunes they kind of referenced a couple of the guys up there where they just had picked up a, a couple of random guys basically on the side of the road in the town abandoned and said hey do you guys want to come build a golf course yeah why not and then it turns out, you know, some of those guys are, you know, now getting ready to build the fifth golf course up there, you know, where, where the sheep ranches. So I thought that was, was kind of cool and kind of relates back to what you were saying. So interesting. So so how long exactly were you at the Jones firm before you finally had the opportunity to actually really start having input in terms of overall design? I know we'll eventually get to when, you know, kind of your first big project that you were the head of, which, of course, the host of the 2015 U.S. Open at, Ch you know, at Chambers Bay. Um, was that the first project where you were kind of like the man making a lot of the big decisions in terms of routing, um, the basically everything, or, or is that something you had kind of slowly been working up towards in the 10 years that you had been with that firm beforehand? Well, that all came about, you know, so I started in the fall of 2001 mm -hmm. and for a couple of years was basically assisting others. There were, uh, some smaller projects back in the Midwest where, uh, the company had, had done a golf course and they needed to alter one hole hmm. or uh, there was some adjacent land that became available and they wanted to expand a practice facility. So those little things would be something where the guy in the office who did it originally was in charge, but they were working on a big project somewhere else. So Got they it. gave me a little bit more freedom and said, okay. here, you, you go on a site visit and meet with them. And, you know, so it was a little bit of baby steps getting out into the field, seeing what all that was like. Sure. Um, in terms of being able to take a, a bigger role, I, again, part of that probably came about because of just workload. So right. Chambers Bay comes along and here it is. It's a it's a big public process. So Pierce County, Washington was the uh, owner, the developer. So they had a very formal process, request for qualifications, request for proposal. And so uh, it was, it was a, just the sheer volume of work that needed to be done just to submit the proposal was mm -hmm. kind of an all-hands-on-deck type of situation. Sure, so yeah. We had people kind of on the business side who were preparing all sorts of statements and stuff like that. And then, uh, you know, on the design side, 
we actually, as part of our interview, had to prepare a mock golf course. Oh. And so if you only have a month to do that, uh, uh, and other people are traveling around the world, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and for me, I, I saw this come across the desk and, and I immediately was excited and intrigued and it represented everything that I loved about golf. It totally. Was public, it was sand, it was on the water, it was all, all these great things. So I was all in. Um, and so myself and another guy in the office, we, we basically spent close to a month pulling all-nighters almost every night and uh, that's the romantic part that you were talking about before is that <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so we were working hard putting all sorts of stuff together uh, for the proposal but it was very much an all hands on deck type of situation and then once we got the job uh, Pierce County basically needed and wanted somebody to be available to them at all times you mm. know this was a big deal they would wanted and needed constant communication so sure uh, for, uh, you know, for me, that was fantastic. Cause I love the idea of being kind of all in on one project or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it worked out great because I could, I could be available all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And, and then, uh, you know, the guys above me could be available, uh, you know, half the time or, or whatever. So there were, it was still very much, uh, a, a team thing and everybody kind of could fit into their roll the right way that they needed to and and make it all work so some of it was just a byproduct of happenstance but it was perfect scenario for me very very cool so we were talking a little bit before we started uh recording the podcast so what what exactly was that process like in terms of preparing you said you're pulling all-nighters for a month you know getting this mock you know sketch about the golf course together working with a partner that whole thing of basically putting your name in the hat and hoping that Pierce County selects you guys to design this golf course. What was that process like in terms of going up against other architecture firms and how, in a situation like that, are you able to, in the best light possible, present your vision and allow yourself to stand out up against? Is it just a matter of, you know, I'm sure what you were just saying that, hey, I'm here all the time. I can be your point of contact 24 hours a day. It sounds like that played a big part of it. What, what other kinds of things would you do to make sure that you stood out and that you put yourself in the best light possible for something like that? Well, I think that's a tough question to just answer with a broad brush, just because every single project is, is different. So what the people at Pierce County, Washington, sitting behind their table might be looking for and might be excited about could be the exact opposite of what other people at another project are looking for so because everyone is different um you know you you try to do your best to get a sense of okay in this situation it was a very formal process so the first order of business was make sure you do the formal process correctly right so if let's make sure that if a question was asked we answer that question Mm -hmm. if you know so those types of things for all we know uh you know, they could have been enamored with uh, the portfolio of the RTJ2 office, sure. and this was all a formality. Now, we, we think that it wasn't, and, and they w- went through a very thorough process. But, yeah. you know, so you never you never know what's going on, uh, on on the other side of things. But that project was so big, and, uh, you know, we, we spent so much time on that. Um, we, we created a huge, a huge book and walked them all through it, and... and um, um, you know, they had deep questions and, and, and all sorts of stuff. And, 
the other thing to consider is this was not just a golf project. You know, there were civil engineers and building architects and mm -hmm. landscape architects, and there was going to be a management company involved, and all these different people it's were part. A lot part of moving parts. Yeah, you know, it was a former sand and gravel mine, so. Um, you know, it, it was a, a big, huge team effort. There were dozens and dozens, dozens of people that, that worked on worked on that and contributed to getting the job. And then once you get the job, there are hundreds of people that actually make it happen. Interesting. So, so uh, Pierce County in Washington is kind of the, I guess, who you w was technically your client. Is that correct? The, the county. Well, RTJ2's client. Oh, yes. R okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, Robert, yeah, Robert Trent Jones is Junior's client, who you are working for at the right. time. Um, are you reporting to a committee? of people that are at the county? Is there some like one person or do they have a small like greens committee that they've dedicated to this Chambers Bay project that you are reporting to? Because um, just from other conversations I've had, uh, that's one thing I often forget and that I think a lot of other golfers like myself forget when they think about the work of a golf course architect is that it's not always up to them. You know, it's what their client wants often has a huge impact on what the final result was and whether it's a single individual or it's a group of people can have, can make that process much more simple or vastly more complicated. In the particular instance of Chambers Bay, what was that situation like and who were you reporting to as your client? Well, yeah, you touched on a great point. The, 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 the role of the client in the final product of a golf course is, is immense. And I think it's one that uh, just, you know, everyday golfers may not really be aware of. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't, when I was younger growing up, I just assumed that the best golf courses were done by the best architects, you know, <laughs> and what you quickly learn is that, you know, your goal as the, as the architect is to fulfill the client's wishes and dreams. Sure. And so where great golf occurs is where you have a great piece of property, a great client and a great architect okay. who are in sync sure. uh, on the vision for that, that project. So as it relates to uh, Pierce County, so again, they were, uh, they could not have been more organized. Mm -hmm. uh, they had outlined a schedule, and we hit that schedule almost day for day, you know, over the course of two years. They awesome. had it all mapped out. So, uh, and that was very, very impressive. So the, they had different layers. So the the project visionary was the um, uh, was the head of the county, the county executive at the time. His name was John Ladenberg, mm -hmm. and so he was the guy with the 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 big vision sure. and so here's this former sand and gravel mine and he wants to turn it into this great community asset and the golf course would be the flagship part of it and and let's have a golf course that not only would be great for our local residents what would bring people from around the world to come see it and could host a major championship so that was a goal from the get-go to produce a course that would one day maybe have the possibility of hosting a major championship of some kind it was okay. it, you know they didn't they didn't really specify a major, sure, but they but were saying a, a PG, PGA Tour event or sure. whatever. Um, and as part of our uh, presentation in the interview, we were trying to share with them how convinced we were that the site had the potential to do just that, that we had these bag tags made up that said 2030 U.S. Open as a way to say this is how 
much we think of the site, we think this is a is a, is a possibility. You guys are selling yourself short. I, <laughs> you know, I, I we, we've we've long joked that uh, you know if if we would have put a clause in the contract that said you know you get a major bonus if this happens, and if it happens early, you get a bigger bonus. <laughs> they probably would have signed on the dotted yeah, line. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, so you had John Ladenberg, who was who was the big visionary, and 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 he was great. You had the. Um, uh, the county council, which actually had to approve certain things along the way. But the, the, the main guy who was there kind of on an all-day, everyday, day-to-day basis was a, a guy named Tony Tipton. So he served as the kind of project manager for the county, if you will. And, okay. and, and for, the better, for the better part of two years, I think Tony and I talked every day, <laughs> you know, multiple times a day, uh, or, or pretty close to it. So, uh, it, and, and, and again... So they had different layers, but but he he was the guy and, and could not have been more organized. And uh, as as a golf architect, what you're looking for out of the client side of things, mm-hmm. obviously you want to share the same vision and all those things. Sure. But you really want people who are going to be fair, and that can be very very tough when stuff starts hitting the fan. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, to Tony's credit, I mean. I think that the highest compliment you can give him was that he was thorough and he was fair. And mm-hmm. so th- those, it was a great asset to have both he and, and John Ladenberg on that side of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I lost my train of thought there. I, I had a question when you were talking about your clients and uh, in terms of them wanting to build it as a major championship. But since I can't remember, I'll, I'll continue on. So uh, when you're up at Chambers Bay, ha- what is your role technically – as kind of the project manager for Robert Trent Jones, and how often is Mr. Jones there to work with you? Because um, when you know, I was learning a little bit more about the project before we met up here today, and kind of realized that you were kind of the man on hand at all times. You probably had as much impact on the design of that golf course as anybody. Maybe, maybe more so. Maybe not. I wasn't there. I don't know. Um, wh- what kind of uh, input did Mr. Jones have during the the project? And what kind of ideas would you bounce off him or would he bounce off you? And how did you guys work together to eventually come up with a product and, and the golf course that we know as Chambers Bay today? You're asking all the tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> we won't get in, in, into any details on any one particular project. But, you know, I think that the thing for listeners to, to realize is just that uh, every office is different mm-hmm. and uh, – Every person is different, and then every project is different. So on certain projects, you may have people come out and be involved more often, and then other projects less often. Um, in, in terms of um, just in general, um, you know, Bobby is so great in that he loves to ask questions of everybody. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you're in the office and he's – just came back from a visit to Europe he'll ask you you know what do you think about this and what do you think about that even if you haven't been there he you know he just wants to to talk and discuss and learn and challenge and 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 all those kinds of things so uh, you know throughout the course of of the project whether it's the the name or the people uh, that most people have never heard of that work in the office Mm -hmm. there's a constant stream of back and forth and discussions about what do you think about this and what do you think about that when you're in the field you're working hand in hand with the shapers Mm -hmm. and so no matter how much you draw something on plan in reality 
that's just an idea and it's just a starting point. Once you get in the dirt is when all the magic really happens. Right. And so if the, the shapers, the guy on the excavator, the guy on the dozer, uh, they're the ones who actually need to, to pull it off. So you need to be able to communicate effectively with them. And more often than not, they're going to have ideas on how to make something uh, better or, or, or challenge you on, on different things. So it, it's, it's always kind of a, a, a group effort working towards uh, the best final product. Sure. Well, I, I think uh, I've heard interviews with Tom Doak where he's discussed um, you know, his internship with, with Pete Dye, where he worked for a couple of years. And he always said that the most wonderful thing about working for Mr. Dye is that he was never set in any one plan that if any, he'd always be asking questions. And if anybody had an idea that he thought sounded good, he would not hesitate to change, you know, change plans on, you know, right then and there and say, all right, actually, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And it sounds to me like you and Mr. Jones had a similar type thing where you guys would bounce ideas off each other. And if, you know, even though he's the architect of record, if you had something that you were doing, he's like, that's a good idea. Let's just do that. Is that, was that, is that fair to say? Yeah. You're, you're all, you're always striving for the best possible outcome. Mm -hmm. So if, if the guy, uh, if, if the laborer on the construction team holding the, holding the shovel has a better idea than you do, uh, you know, you'd be far better served to, to, to make that work. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, victory is a thousand friends and, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, oftentimes ego can get in the way of, of, of greatness. So yeah, the, the more, uh, uh, the more you can, can be open-minded and, and look at things and, and just strive for what, what's best for the project. That that's always key. Sure. Well, just talking to you for a little bit, I can tell you're a very humble guy. You know, <laughs> you, you enjoy being with other people. You enjoy bouncing ideas off people. And so this probably does not pertain to you, but I, as I was listening to a couple of those interviews that I just referenced with Tom Doak and talking to you, um, and you know your project at Chambers Bay, it reminded me of a TV show that I'd watched on Netflix not too long ago. Not to go too far off subject, but have you have you watched the show Chef's Table at all on Netflix? It's about famous chefs all over the world and how they conduct their business and what they do, or you know what goes into making the best restaurants in the world. Just so, and they did a small uh, feature on this gentleman who has one of the best restaurants in the world in Chicago. And before he opened up his restaurant in Chicago. He worked at the French Laundry here up in Yonville in Napa County, where, uh, that, which is managed by Thomas Keller, one of the fam most famous chefs in the world, three Michelin stars. And as he's working in Thomas Keller's kitchen, he is exploring, he's experimenting, and he comes up with this brand new dish. And he's like, wow, this is, this is really something wonderful. He brings it to Thomas Keller and says, Thomas, what do you think about this? And he tastes it. He said, this is amazing. I can't serve it in this restaurant. And he says, is it not good? He's like, no, no, it's one of the best things I've ever had. The only problem is if I serve this in my restaurant, it's a Thomas Keller dish. It's not your dish. And he's like, you know what? That's okay. I'm going to come up with a thousand other great dishes. I don't have to worry about it. Is that something where you were saying that sometimes guys' egos can get in the way where in golf course architecture, guys who are looking to make a name for themselves, um, you know, do you know them that any of them that hesitate to not, you know, do all they can or they want to maybe hide something? I don't know. Hide, hide is an awful word to, to use, but essentially, is there ever a conflict in terms of, you know, people wanting to get more credit than they're getting? Or I don't know. Is, is that really a problem at all in the golf course? I'm obviously not with you, but just in general from what you've seen in your 10 plus years in the industry, is that ever something that comes up? Or is everybody, for the most part, pretty, you know, willing to get along and just do whatever they need to do to make sure the project turns out as good as possible? 
I think for the most part, you know, people are in the golf industry because they love it. Sure. And obviously, uh, for those who are really um, intimately involved or study it very closely, they probably have an understanding about how different roles in offices get filled. Uh, you know, so probably the easiest way to think about it is to think about like a tour player, mm -hmm. right? So there's a number of tour players who um, maybe towards the end of their career, all of a sudden start getting involved in golf design. Mm -hmm. And so if you're Joe golfer and you go out and you play a course and there's some tour player's name on it and you say, Oh, that tour player designed a golf course. Well, there's a pretty good likelihood that they were maybe there once, twice. Maybe they were out there once during construction, and then they were there on opening day to, right. you know, hit the first tee shot and have a ribbon cutting ceremony or, or whatever. So, you know, there were other people who <laughs> spent two or three years uh, sure. working on that, coming up with all that. So, and and they might be just as happy because they're getting to do what they love, even if nobody's ever heard of them or whatever. So I think yeah. on balance. Uh, you know, most people who are in the golf industry are in it because they love it. Uh, they're probably not in it for fortune. <laughs> it, it, you know, for, for most people in the industry, I don't think it's a super lucrative proposition. Uh, and most of them probably aren't in it for fame because in reality, okay. there's maybe a half a dozen people who, you know, Joe Golfer has heard of with regards to uh, golf design. So I, I think for, for the most part, most people are, are in it for all the right reasons and they all work at it and are happy there's no doubt that you know ego plays a role i mean i haven't been on site with tour players but there's a million stories about you know big famous people who mm -hmm. show up for their one day on site and somebody's been working on this thing for well dozens or hundreds of people have been working on it sure. uh, in construction but uh you know somebody's you know, been working on it for two years and then they show up and say, oh, put a pond over here on the left. Okay. And that that may or may not fit with, you know, what the overall context of everything else going on is. So, uh, you know, how how that all breaks down, uh, you know, is once again, it's always on a case by case uh, sure. basis. That was a really long roundabout <laughs> choppy way of basically just asking from your experience. Do, are, do it seem like a lot of gentlemen are in there for the vanity aspect, for the rock star kind of aspect of, you know, so-and-so does it. I mean, is that an ambition of a lot of guys who start to first get into it, I guess you could say? I would assume that every little kid, you know, the same way that you dream of winning the Masters. It's yeah. Masters week, right? You <laughs> right. Know, so you're on, the, you're on the green, you've got your putt, you want to uh, win the Masters. If, if you want to be a golf architect, you probably don't dream of being – the guy that nobody's ever heard of mm -hmm. but <laughs> as as soon as you get into the industry and you recognize okay well what is the industry really all about and what is it that i want to do and what is it that's going to make me happy if what you want to do is build golf courses then odds are your best chance for happiness is to be a part of uh, of a a team that Builds golf courses. Yeah, <laughs> you know, totally. Uh, you know, if, if you want to be famous, then you can strive for that and work towards that. But at the end of the day, what you might end up doing is going around and going to proposals and making pitches and doing a lot of business development dinners, uh, you know, wearing your blazer and uh, trying to get on TV and all these different things. Sure. So uh, 
and while you're doing that, you might not be building golf course. Okay. So, so uh, it's different for everybody. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Now, I do have a couple more questions about Chambers Bay for you, and I warned you before we started, I've got mm -hmm. like 10 hours worth of questions to ask you. So if at any point you look at your clock, you're like, holy cow, man, I got, we, we may have to wrap things up. You just let me know. But a couple more Chambers Bay questions for you before we move on to the next thing. Um, as you look back to your time at Chambers Bay, is there one incident or one thing that you look back to during the construction or when you guys were building this golf course that stands out as the largest challenge that you had to overcome uh, when you're building that golf course? Maybe something that was unique to that property specifically that you don't know if you'll ever encounter again. I is there anything that stands out to you as like, whew, I can't, I don't know how we did that. That seemed remarkable. Well, um, another, another great question. Uh, because I referenced earlier the county and how organized they were. Sure. I think because of that, there were far fewer surprises at Chambers Bay than perhaps a, a traditional golf course. I'm going to assume that when you're building a golf course, surprises are not good. Well, no, unlike surprise birthday parties. No, no. So, so surprises can be great. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, but but more often, you know, there's this w wonderful magic that happens when construction starts. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I think I referenced it earlier, you know, you can draw plans till you're blue in the face, but one, one, once the... Once you actually start moving dirt, once things start, really escalate quickly. Right, and, and what happens is you start to move dirt, and you're out there, and you see something. And so the, I think you referenced Tom Doak saying, okay, uh, in complimenting Pete Dye, okay, now that we're started, we see something, we might want to veer this direction. Where is that going to take us and what's that going to lead to? Mm -hmm. So um, and there's lots of people who that's a that's definitely part of the method to the madness. I think Tom has referred to this. Uh, Bill and Ben have referred to, you know, we want we want to get started and see where things go sure. and let things evolve. And that can be a great way to do it. And, and those, those guys have an unbelievable track record of, of success. With a project such as Chambers Bay, which is county, very organized, timelines, the amount of planning that had to go into it and staying on schedule, mm -hmm. there probably wasn't as much time to just explore and sure. let things evolve. Okay, and, yeah, that know. makes sense. But to the county's credit, we had a full year before construction. So to get up there and work through those things even before construction started. So okay. one of the interesting things that happened was the sixth hole on plan. That was going to be a par three. It was played out into the middle of an open field. Once we did some initial clearing, we noticed that after some trees came out, there was a cool little pocket in the dunes off in the distance. And so the sixth hole went from being a par three out into an open field to being a long par four where the tee shot is out into that open field, but the next shot goes into this little crevice in the dunes. So that's an example of a surprise. Once the trees sure. came down, you saw something, you changed course. So, But more so than uh, many other projects, Chambers Bay was, was very well organized, very well planned. We didn't really have too many surprises or things that kind of caught off caught us off guard or were too huge of a challenge because they had been thought about ahead of time and, 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 and planned for and accounted for. Okay. Now, you know, according to your, you know, course design philosophy, or, you know, whatever that may be, when you make a change like that and you go from a par three to maybe a long par four, 
do you feel obligated to then change something else about the golf course to kind of get par back to a certain level? Or do you kind of approach it, well, hey, whatever the best golf holes are, whatever the par adds up to whatever it is, that's, that's just what it is. So you, you touched on what's your philosophy and then what is the client's philosophy. Uh-huh, so, okay. For, okay. so for me, uh, I, I certainly subscribe to that philosophy of let's just create the best golf course possible. Mm-hmm. My, my dream, my goal in life is to create great golf courses. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I'm le- far less interested in creating okay golf courses and there's <laughs> lots of those out there sure but uh, you know I, I, I play a lot of them all the time I, I have a real passion for wanting to try to do something great so sure. uh, whether that's a par 70 or a par 73 that doesn't matter to me one sure. bit having said that there's a lot of clients that those things are really important to par you know overall yardage I want four par threes I want four par fives things like that can be very important to other people so me personally I'm on a mission I'd I'd like to eliminate par in the game of golf uh you know I think Bobby Jones said it uh said it's nothing more than a mental hazard uh you know I've I've taken a number of people out to certain holes and you know they'll walk off and they'll say oh that's a terrible hole you know they made a six on a long par four or something like that. That hole's so unfair, it's ridiculous or whatever. And I said, okay, now if that was a par five, how would you feel about that hole? Oh, it'd be great. It'd be a risk reward. I could get home in two. Yada. You know, it's the same exact golf hole, but how you look at it changes, uh, you know, what your impression of the hole is, things like that. This is a discussion that me and my uh, uh, often co-host go back and forth with all the time. He is in your camp. I, I, th- I think I am as well. But yeah, the that whole part, I mean, it is just a number, and a lot of times it causes people a lot of unnecessary grief, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, particular <laughs> and, uh, and stroke play. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm all for match play as well. So. Well, okay, so that actually will lead me into the last thing I wanted to uh, touch on with you about Chambers Bay, and in doing a little research before I came down to meet you today, uh, I stumbled across uh, some things where you were basically noting up at Chambers Bay. Um, I'm sure everybody who watched 2015 U.S. Open, you know, saw the tee boxes. They're kind of long ribbon tee boxes that are all kind of interconnected. And I, I believe, is it still walking only? Or they, they do allow it carts is. out there. It's still walking only. If you have a medical uh, reason that you need a cart uh, and you have a do- have your have your doctor's note, you can sure <laughs> you can take one. They'll, they'll, they'll take you out yeah. there. So, um, but then I not saw that you were strongly advocating for it to be a match play course and something where there were no tee boxes or you know, no no tee markers, no par. It's just simply whoever won the previous hole gets to pick the spot to go from, and then you just go. Not only do I think that is unbelievably cool, um, I, I understand that, again, it gets back to the whole client thing. What do they want? What, what are their goals? Your vision of having kind of a match play course with no set T markers, do you think that's realistic, or do you think there's um, developers or people that are building golf courses out there that want that kind of thing, or maybe that's something that you see becoming more popular in the future? And do you think Chambers Bay would like to do that maybe a couple days a year at some point? Is, I, I don't know. I just find that to be genuinely fascinating. Yeah, I love the concept. Uh, I've I, I pushed it hard at Chambers Bay, and and uh, you know what, what was the uh, rea- when you were well, advocating for it? Uh, you know, again, remember I was a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed twenty-five-year-old. <laughs> you know, with with big big dreams. So, um, you know, they said, yeah, neat idea. Let's let's get back to reality. <laughs> but you know, many many people would have thought that it would have been. Um, way out of the norm or 
or not a good idea to craft a golf course for a municipality that's walking only. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I remember being in the office when we were working on the initial plans and presentation. And I was talking to a colleague and I was explaining, you know, how wanted it to be walking only and all this and that. And he just kind of rolled his eyes and said, yeah, good luck. That'll never happen. You know, so that happened. Mm -hmm. That worked out. You know, the, the, the tea boxes thing didn't happen uh, in terms of uh, the, the teas. And I understand, you know, they're operating as a, um, you know, for that, you, you kind of have to, uh, it's probably more appropriate at a private club. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, if you've got people coming from all over the world to play, some of the standard norms for golf are going to going to win the day. They're going to win the day. Sure. So, but uh, in terms of will there be an opportunity for more of that? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, here we are. We're at the Siebel uh, Stanford Golf Practice Facility. This is a facility where you can come out and make your own golf course and just go from place to place and mm -hmm. and kind of dream up where you want to go next. So, um, yeah, I I, I love. Uh, I'm a big believer in that. I, I would. I've I've talked to other clients about let's not have T blocks and you know all that kind of stuff. Haven't gotten one to bite yet. But if you had to pick and choose between the the no T markers or the walking only, is there one that you think is more important to the integrity or the quality of a golf course? Well, particular Chambers Bay, the walking only was key because yeah. that directly related to the agronomics and and the use of fescue, and that meant firm and fast conditions, right. and that meant you could play the ball on the ground, and that meant that all the ground contours had meaning, and that's what made the golf course special. So, the you know the walking only was uh, was really a key decision, and that really the hat goes off there to John Ladenberg, the county visionary, because mm -hmm. it's it's one thing for us to dream that up and share that with him but he's the but guy the head honcho has got to be on board as well he, he's got to be he's got to live you know so um if you'll let me uh share so one, no, one, this is great i'm, one, I'm fascinated right one, now one of the great meetings was you know we're getting started we're we're in uh, design and and getting ready to go into construction and there's this debate you know it's our dream and vision that it's going to be walking only mm -hmm. and at some point He's got to sign off on that. So Kemper Sports was on board to uh, manage and operate the golf course. And so he says, okay, Jones, guys, you, you put together a presentation as to why walking only is important. Kemper, you guys put together a presentation and tell me what cart revenue means and these types of things versus it seemed like the wrong management company to ask that because they got Dent Bannon Dunes down the road where it's like the most <laughs> perfect example. I'm sorry didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, so he did his homework, you know, mm -hmm. and again, what you want out of a client is to be thorough and fair. And so we had this big meeting and, uh, you know, so we give this impassioned plea as to why we want it to be walking only. And uh, the Kemper guys, as as they were asked to, said, OK, here's potential cart revenue and here's what you might lose out on with caddies or whatever. And, and he it just so happened that this was the day when we were picking a name for the golf course. And so Ladenberg finished the, is the meeting and he says, okay, we'll call it Chambers Bay and we'll walk it in 2007. It was scheduled to open in 2007. Sure. And I, you know, Bruce Tarleton with the Jones office was sitting next to me and I leaned over to him and I said, do you think it'd be inappropriate for me to jump across the table and hug this guy? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he just made with that one statement, he made, he made the golf course what it is. So um, it, it, it takes a great site, takes a great client uh, to make great things happen. That's amazing. So 
that actually kind of leads me to another question in the, as it pertains to walking. I, I've heard from a couple different sources that, you know, if you design a golf course that requires carts or needs cart paths, it can dramatically um, not only change what you, the product that you end up building, but that golf carts actually have a terrible impact on a golf course in terms of changing the topography, compacting soils. You have to have more land to kind of have cart paths going off and they're kind of ugly in the sight lines. How, how does your philosophy or your approach uh, change if you're building something with cart paths versus walking only? Well, cart paths are the bane of all golf architects. <laughs> I mean, they are, does an, it, nobody likes them? they're a nightmare. Yeah. Um, you know, I, there's stories in the industry about certain people who, I don't know if they like them, but they go to great lengths to hide them and, and therefore, you know, get big budgets to do so. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for me personally, they are an absolute nightmare because, you know, if you're a golfer, you want to walk and the great golf courses are, are walkable. Uh, and it, there's uh, the experience is just so much better when you walk. Mm -hmm. As a golf architect, you know, you're trying to create a fun field of play and you're also trying to create a piece of art. Sure. And to do that and then to put this ribbon of asphalt or concrete in your piece of art and in your field of play is a nightmare. And the amount of time and energy that you spend having to try to deal with this you know negative fact of life is uh, if people knew the amount of time and energy you had to spend dealing with that it, it's unbelievable uh so so i'm a huge fan uh anybody out there listening who's involved in golf courses uh if you have to have any car pads do not have full length car pads <laughs> uh, and keep them away from play and uh you know try to find a natural material uh that's funny so that kind of leads me into trends in golf course architecture. Now, as we referenced before, we're here at the Stanford Varsity Training Complex, which you have designed twice over, once initially, and then came to do a, a redo uh, several years later. Is that is that correct? Yeah, so when I was working for Robert Trent Jones too, we, uh, we did this uh, practice facility for Stanford, uh, opened in 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, it was 30 acres at the time, and we had six green complexes, and we modeled them after different architects. Uh, really neat facility. A few years later, they had to come in, uh, and Stanford uh, needed part of the, the space to build a power plant. Mm -hmm. And so um, fast forward a few years, I'm out on my own, uh, and now it's time to reconfigure the facility because we've lost this land to the power plant. They gave us a couple other parcels that were adjacent. So we, we kept about half of what was left, and then we reconfigured and added uh, kind of to the boundaries and mm -hmm. so uh, feel very very fortunate to have been involved twice yeah that's very cool well for anybody who's not familiar with this place which i'd assume is most people because this is <laughs> all but about 25 people <laughs> all but about 20 i mean unless you're on this men's or women's you know varsity golf teams here at stanford university or you're one of you know a handful of donors you're probably not going to see this place this place is so special and so unique would, would you mind kind of going in for at least like maybe a minute or two kind of describing exactly what this place is like, what the, the core you know, purpose and what your vision was when you initially came out here. You referenced that you have greens out here by a couple of different architects. I, I know what you're talking about, but do you mind sharing with some of the people? Just, I mean, it, the story of this place and what it's meant to be is so cool that you know, I see it, I want something like this to be built in every community as like a practice center for people, but 
For those who aren't familiar, do you mind sharing with them in a little more detail kind of what this place is all about? So uh, a very unique project from a golf architecture standpoint. Uh, it all started with a phone call we got from the golf coaches saying, hey, we're at this time they didn't have a practice facility. They were working at the public driving range. They, they called and said, could you help us do a target green and target bunker out in the, the middle of the practice facility? And when I came and met with them, we, we talked and they said, you know, our real dream is to create our own facility over here. And it just so happened that uh, there was an adjacent parcel of land off the second hole that was kind of used as a dumping ground for the university. They had a number of projects going on where they needed to lose some dirt, and the team wanted their own facility. And so uh, powers that be got together, and all of a sudden we had the opportunity to craft something. Mm -hmm. And what was what was so great was working with the golf coaches. So Conrad Ray is the men co men's coach here. At the time it was Caroline O'Connor and, and now the current coach Ann Walker. But f for me to get to spend time with them, you know, when you're building a traditional golf course, you're thinking about, you know, how would somebody play this hole and you look at it from different sides and angles. Here, we were basically just creating one big field of golf. So every green complex you're looking at from 360 degrees, how can you come at it different ways? Mm -hmm. We, we made a list of all the shots that they wanted to be able to practice. We made a list of all the places that they play on an annual basis. And we said, okay, let's try to give them every shot they'd want. Let's give them different grass types. Let's give them different bunker sands. We know that they go to all these different courses that were designed by famous architects. If we're going to do green complexes, let's design them like these different architects uh, where they go every year. So the week before they go play at ASU Karsten course, they can go to the Pete Dye Green and practice hitting out of a yeah, flat so bottom cool. bunker and things like that. So a really, really fun experience. And then to be able to, to be a part of it coming to fruition and then see how they use it. You know, So one day they'll use it like a driving range, and then the next day they'll come out and they'll play matches and um, you know, so we, we like to say that you're here to practice to play, not to practice to practice. Sure. You know, so many places you just go out and beat balls. You're really just practicing to practice. Here you practice to play or practice to win. And the other thing that we talk about is, is you're really only limited by your imagination. The, the world's out here for you. you. You can figure out any type of shot uh, pretty much off of any surface. Uh, it's just up to you to be creative, en creative enough to, to figure it all out. That's so cool. Um, you mentioned that there's like a Pete Dye, you know, Pete Dye green out here. There was for people to practice go to the Karsten course. I saw there's an Alistair McKenzie type uh, green out there. People, you know, the team's going to play Pasta Tiempo or another McKenzie design or something like they'll that. Be, they'll be there later this week. So go Cardinal. <laughs> so I guess my question to you is, do you see something like this ever being possible for that's open to the public. Obviously, the, the jumping around, you know, would be really challenging if you have a lot of public golfers and lots of people out there. But is something like this replicable and usable for something other than like a, a team practice facility? It, it, it's a it's an operations issue. Mm -hmm. So as long as there's a limited enough number of people that are going to have access to it, mm -hmm. then it can kind of be what it is. So. Okay. If there's some private individual out there that just wants to take their 40 acres and craft something unique for the, uh, for them to go out and bring their friends and family out and mm -hmm. you know create their own golf course, that works out pretty well because they're the only ones out there. Sure. The real problem is if you've got hundreds of people who want to use it and want to use it at the same time, 
that's where the operational aspect of things. They will have uh, an ambulance on standby. Well, yeah. <laughs> what would happen is it would just evolve into a golf course. They'd have to set up a route and they'd have right. to set up, uh, uh, you know, kind of intervals for people to get out there and play. Okay. That makes more sense. Now, um, I've already referenced this interview like two or three different times, but I keep going back to this Tom Doak interview that I was listening to, I believe, on the Fried Egg podcast, um, which is hosted by Andy Johnson, who's been on this show before. He's a good guy. And Tom Doak was talking about trends. There's things that he'd like to do in terms of um, basically new projects. And he's talking about he wants to build a golf course just built for women. You know, maybe that's like 6,400 yards from the back tees. And just new kind of trends that he sees or things that he wants to do. Um, in terms of you know building a golf course, is there anything that you have in mind or anything that you've been cooking up that is something like a project like this that's a little bit outside of the box that you'd love to have an opportunity to work on one day? Well, at this, uh, you know, there's there's all sorts of things. I mean, this was special because, like I said, you got to look at it from different perspectives. You were creating a golf course, you were creating a practice facility. You know, you were coming at it from all different angles. So I know Tom recently did uh, the loop up in Michigan, which sure. is a reversible golf course. Mm -hmm. And I had a chance last year to go play it, and he was there, and we talked awesome. about it. Uh, and and it, very cool and well done, and, and congrats to the whole team on that. This is similar to that. Sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. here we have holes that you play one direction and you play the other. So uh, I've kind of been through that that thought process uh you know, on a, on a smaller scale. So that was really interesting. You know, I think the thing for me that I would be most excited about is probably a little bit different than, than Tom and probably just at stages of career. You know, Tom's been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to work on a number of uh, projects where the parcel of land was just spectacular. And his job and his team's job was to essentially find the best golf holes and to massage them and 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 bring them to life from the the perfect land that was there uh most of the projects that i've had a chance to work on as special as they've been um you've maybe had to create more of the golf hole so chambers bay we had to move 1.5 million cubic yards is that all <laughs> that's it <Okay>. yeah <laughs> so there were certain holes where we're going you know down 30 feet you know type of thing so i think for me what i would be most excited about would be to have the opportunity to try to take on a parcel of land that's perfect uh, and see if I can, see what you can do with it. find the golf holes. Uh, you know, the things like, you know, no tees, uh, yeah, uh, match play, uh, no par. I'd, I'd love to do all those things. I'm, I, I hate rough. I'd love to eliminate rough from the game of golf. So I want to play your golf courses, Jay. They sound <laughs> awesome. So, uh, uh, and, and I'm, a, I, I, I'm not a fan of, uh, uh, artificial hazards, particularly, you know, fake ponds or, or oh. uh, creek. So if I can eliminate all those things, I think we'd have a, a, a fun place to play. Interesting. Well, it's a good thing you're designing golf courses now and not in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very true. Uh, so, all right. Well, so now we, uh, we're, we're, you know, going to be run up on time, probably going to cut it off in 15 minutes or so. So let's get down to business and kind of really discuss the, the thing that brought us together in the first point. And that is your work with the San Francisco Public Golf Alliance as it relates to Sharp Park Golf Course in Pacifica, California. Um, it's an Alistair McKenzie design from, built in 1932. It's one of the, to my understanding, one of the only three Alistair McKenzie golf courses open to the public uh, in the U.S. I know all three of them are in California, in Pasatiempo, Sharp Park, and Northwood, up on the Rush River. Are, am I missing any? 
Well, I think it de- de- depends on your definition of public. I ah, think uh, Ohio, Ohio, Ohio State and Michigan uh, could, okay. could both kind of be uh, okay. considered public. So, yeah. But you but don't yeah. have to be an alumni or a student to play at those couple golf courses. Y- you may. Y- okay. You may. So, it, whether or not that's considered private, semi-private, or the student public, body is whatever. huge. You can make a friend somewhere on <laughs> there, so that's okay. That's right. All right. So, um, when I talked to Bo Links a couple of weeks ago, he mentioned your names a couple of times. Like I said, he had some wonderful things to say about you. So, I'm just really curious from a golf architect standpoint, what you think of this project, what you've been doing up to this point to kind of help them along in restoring uh, the McKenzie aspects of that golf course and kind of where we go from here. So we'll, we'll break it down into a couple different questions. So up to this point, what, what have you been doing with the San Francisco Public Golf Alliance uh, in terms of you know putting together a plan to hopefully restore Sharp Park and bring back um, as much of the McKenzie design as possible? So uh, Richard and Bo, the founders of the San Francisco Public Golf Alliance, you know, the, f- the first order of business with Sharp Park was to actually save the golf course. Absolutely. You know, all, the, all this litigation that was taking place. And Richard and Bo, if, if you guys aren't familiar, yeah. those guys are <laughs> the best. superheroes. Yeah. I mean, those guys are champions of champions. I mean, they've probably dedicated, what, how many thousands of hours of uh, their time? You, you can't count it. The, oh. the, the, uh, the, the volumes of, of paper that they've, uh, <laughs> they've been through, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. But so, you know, the first order of business was to save it. Well, one of the aspects, you know, the, the, big, the big question mark out there is can golf and nature coexist? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and there's this long debate about the frog and the snake and, and would they have been there without the golf course and, you know, all these different things. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of discussion about habitat and how much habitat is needed and can things coexist so where um where i've been able to to help and 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 kind of volunteer my time is to to look at that and to say okay if we had to lose a certain part of the golf course that's there today for habitat how could we make things up can we make sure that we can still have 18 holes? Uh, you know, so we've spent a lot of time trying to understand that. If we are going to restore the holes along Laguna Salada in order to, uh, you know, assist with the habitat, how does that then work from a golf standpoint? So if the hydrologist says you need to do this and the uh, frog guy says you need to do this and the snake guy says you need to do this, then okay, <laughs> Mr. Golf Guy, how are you going to make all of that work and try to t- try to fit in? So uh, it's been uh, it, it's it's been great fun and uh, working with Richard and Bo has been uh, fantastic. But those are the types of things that we've been um, doing and all sorts. Of, you know, I'm eight years into this thing, and and so lots of lots of planning, lots and of. You very well could be there for another eight. <laughs> well, ho- hopefully we'll we'll make some progress uh, in, in less than eight years. But uh, you know. For, for those who aren't familiar with the project, it, it's, it's one that really represents everything that's great about golf. And for everybody who loves golf and for all of us who got exposed to the game, um, you know, through some kind of a mentor, this is the, this is the place that, you know, when the USGA has ads about for the good of the game and you see pictures of, you know, grandson and, and granddad walking or youth, youth groups out there or whatever – Sharp Park is what they're really talking about. All those commercials should theoretically be filmed at Sharp they Park. They should. They okay. should. Awesome. So, so the the whole point of the restoration project is to obviously give it some guts back, bring back some of the original design qualities that you know it had, uh, you know, uh, 
double fairways, you know, uh, split fairways, Eden holes, you know, everything that you think of when you think of an Alistair McKenzie golf course. You've, you know, I just saw you built an Alistair McKenzie green out here at the Stanford uh, Golf Complex. What are some of the elements or the things that you feel are most important to bring back to life on that golf course to really give it that kind of feel that you, Bo, Richard, and everybody else has kind of envisioned for that golf course? What, what do you see as the most important aspects to really bring to life um, and highlight when you, when you start to work there? Well, I think the thing that people will notice when they go out there is that the setting is still there. You know, so well, o- well over 80 years, um, you know, some of the McKenzie has kind of been hidden, if mm-hmm. you will. The setting is still a magical place. Absolutely. So every, everybody who goes there is just completely taken and enchanted with, with the setting. And, and in particular, for those who have been to Scotland, they all immediately recognize that, you know, this is about as close as we get to Scotland in the United States mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, here is this great little golf course by the sea that's part of a town. You know, sure. and that and that's everywhere in Scotland, and everybody's got their great stories about that. So while the while the charm and the ambiance is still there, it's really the details that have just kind of been lost over time. So mm-hmm. if you think about uh, green complexes in particular, you can go out there and look, and you'll see there's some great undulations and rolls and hillocks and hummocks, and yet for the most part, you know, all the greens are kind of an oval or a circle. Well, we we know that. You know, those little rolls and hummocks in and around those green complexes with Dr. McKenzie, those would have been an integral part of that green complex. Absolutely. And, and very rarely did you see a, a circle or an oval green from not from, often from, from the good no. doc. So bringing back those types of things, uh, you know, most, you know, one of the things that's obviously uh, uh, sticks out and is sexy on a golf course are bunkers. And mm-hmm. you can go out there today and you'll see that there's, you know, there aren't many bunkers, but the ones that are there are, you know, as they do over time, they get rounded off and stuff like that. So, so recraft, recrafting, uh, a maintenance the, guy may have had a little too much to drink the night before <laughs> and you know, burns out an edge of the bunker or something well, like that. Well, over 80 years, that might happen here and there. There, it's probably more just a matter of, of resources. I mean, the people who are there, uh, do a great job with the resources that they have. I sure. mean, they're, they're just, uh, they just don't have the resources right. that they need. Uh, but it's, it's but, a muni. But but uh, yeah, so bringing bringing back those types of things, um, you know, other things, you know, trees have grown up and get into the way of play. So, uh, you know, if there's, you know, right now I was out there last week, you know, there's so many trees that are um, dead and dying or, or dangerous. So <laughs> those are things that sure. we want to we want to get out of there. So you, do, you, know. you think tree clearing is probably going to be a big part? Of the restoration out there, or do you think well, you guys will embrace a lot of the trees that have grown in okay. since the the course of again? There's 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 a balance there, uh, and and you know the important thing is safety first. So sure. dead, dying, and dangerous trees, <laughs> uh, th- those are important. And then uh, you look at it from an agronomic standpoint, mm-hmm. and and are there places where we effectively can't grow grass, and you know which trees were supposed to be here and which ones weren't, things like that. So sure. right now there's there's three or four spots where there's trees where there were where there was a bunker. So if you'd like to really restore the golf course and put the bunker back where it is, you it know, will require thing. a few <laughs> chainsaws. Yeah, thing, thing, things like that. But but those are things that all need to be done in balance. You go through the proper channels, and you know we like I said we're eight years in. We 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 go through. We do sure. things by the book and 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 work with all the uh, the various entities who are involved and and try to make sure that uh, those things are all done the right way. That's awesome. Yeah, because when when I was speaking with Bo, he was saying that 
even though now that the uh, the Board of Supervisors has kind of designated Sharp Park as a historical site, you know, and it, it'll be kind of kept in place that now there's still a lot more work to do and there's still so many governing bodies and, you know, kind of organizations that are going to be involved that they're going to ha have to navigate in order to really get this restoration project to come to fruition. Um, he was thinking, saying that, you know, an, a big irrigation system is probably one of the things that's most needed at that golf course, but that's going to be one of the more challenging things because you're talking about working with the Army Corps of Engineers, landscape architect, all this different stuff. So maybe to do something before that happens to kind of give uh, players a little bit of a preview of what really could be. Do you see that as something that possibly could be happening? And if so, would you just talk about maybe working a couple of greens or bringing a couple of fairway bunkers? H how would you best, what, what, what would your ideal scenario be for kind of highlighting what could be to give people a little taste of, of, of what a big actual redesign would look like? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, oftentimes when a new golf course is being built uh, around a housing development, they build a showcase hole. They build one hole first so that people can see, oh, this is what it's going to look like or whatever. The seventh <laughs> is going to be our signature <laughs> hole. Yeah. So what about the other 17? Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Everything will relate to what I affectionately, affect, uh, affectionately refer to as the agencies. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but... Yes, it would be great to to take one one green complex and and restore it to show people what that would be like. And so I think that's something that we can work towards, and we can work towards, um, you know. the The thing about the site is that you know certain areas of the site are have far more issues than other areas of the site. So it's all picking the right spot, picking the right time of year. Uh, figuring out the right way to do it. But I think something like that is something that we would we'd strive to do, whether it's a, a green complex. I know we've talked about doing a, a practice putting green right by the... Something like the Himalayas or the Punch Bowl at the Bannon or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I mean, we Which don't... Which would be mighty cool. We don't have the space to do one to that scale, but, but that's the concept, uh, mm -hmm. and it'd be right there, and I think it'd be very neat. So uh, whatever one of those types of things is uh, something that we can find the best way to navigate... Uh, through the agencies, uh, those are those are worthy efforts. Sure. And now, one last question about Sharp Park before we get out of here: Is there anything that you've seen out there when you've been walking around Sharp Park, playing Sharp Park, that maybe is not in the Mackenzie mold that you think to yourself, mm, "This could be a really, really good idea." Maybe with those valley holes that are up on the other side of the highway, because those aren't original Mackenzie holes. Is there something? I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there anything vastly different than what they have right now that is also not in the original McKenzie design that you would like to see implemented? Well, I think the one place where that would be worthy of study would be those those four canyon holes. The canyon holes, uh, sorry, yeah. Not yeah. The holes. Uh, and, and so, but that's a perfect example of, okay, well, that's a, that's a great area to get the brain trust together, put all the different options out there, on the table and weigh the pros and cons and determine okay well what would ultimately be be best and it could be keeping what we have and 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 restoring what we have or it it could be uh you know adjusting something up there so that would be the one area where you could probably look at but don't know whether or not that would ever evolve and but but the right way to do that is to get everybody together have the brain trust look at it put ideas out on the table and and you know as a group see where that would go awesome all right since we got to get going i get one last question for you and then i get to let you go this is one that i've asked for a couple of people now i have to ask you as well since you're my guest you can't choose any golf courses that you yourself have worked on 
you only get to play three golf courses the rest of your life. <laughs> where, where are you going to be playing most of your golf, Jay? Uh, yeah, t- tough one. Um, I think Shinnecock would be one. I've been lucky enough to play there a couple times. Okay. And, uh, and as good ju- as advertised? Yeah, just love everything about it. Uh, just fantastic, uh, you know, beautiful setting, great strategy, just uh, just a joy every time. Um, uh, it's a tough one. I, now, I would have thought, uh, at least for everything out there in the Hamptons, I often hear people talk about national because because they, a lot of people say Shinnecock is too difficult for them. Did you not find that to be the case? <laughs> uh, uh, Knock on wood. I did. I did have. You know. I, like I said, I've been lucky enough to play there uh, actually three times now. But um, I did have perhaps my best round of my life there. I did shoot seventy two with a lost ball. Uh, so th- th- that was uh, uh, maybe not my best score, but maybe my best round. Well but, done. But I like to pride myself on not judging a golf course based on how I played it. Sure. So, <laughs> um, in terms of national, I just had the chance to play that for the first time last year, and and loved it truth be told i probably would have rather spent a week walking around national than getting one afternoon to play it Interesting. Uh, you know so um i'm not sure that you know one afternoon to play you know and same could be said with the old course you know mm-hmm. i've had a chance to go play the old golf the old course and uh you come off and you think to yourself oh that was great fun it was you know it was everything but you, what you really want to do is just spend a week walking around if sure. not if not six months walking around Absolutely. You know. um maybe get a caddy gig out there yeah so um we'll go with um we'll go with shinnecock uh cyprus and then maybe either dornick or royal melbourne those those would be good how good good about, places to visit. How about this? How about I give you four courses and you can choose both. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Awesome, Jay. Thank you very very much for your time, and I really really do appreciate right. it. I hope we get a chance to, to do this again. You know, golf course architecture. I don't know a lot about it, but I love it. Yeah. And uh, having a resource like you to kind of answer my questions and humor me has been really really wonderful, and I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you. Appreciate awesome. the opportunity, and uh, whenever you want to do it again, let me know. Perfect. Sounds good, man. Thank Take you. Care. Yes, sir. Thank you again to Jay for uh, sitting down with me. And thank you again to our sponsors. And those would be Golf Guide. (laughs) Who would have thought? Golf Guide on the Golf Guide podcast. Uh, Visit golfguide.net. Save 20 to 70% on greens fees at golf courses all over Northern California. And hopefully a few more here in the surrounding areas, which would include uh, Tahoe, Nevada, Vegas, Southern California, and Oregon. So, Working on that as soon as we have uh, some more deals, which should be coming down the pipeline here pretty soon. I will be sure to relay that information to you. And then also thank you to our sponsor, Seamus Golf. Visit SeamusGolf.com to find yourself the most baller head covers and golf accessories on the internets or otherwise. S-E-A-M-U-S Golf.com. Seamus Golf. And uh, do not forget to check out their new shoes. The feel players, they kind of look like savvy golf moccasins. And, man, they just look so comfortable. i got to get myself a hand, my hands on one of those. So, anyway, in the meantime, thanks so much, everybody. We'll be back soon. Until then, have a fantabulous day.